and I gathered my wits and come out and say to myself, what just happened? Dr. Robbins is asking me to become a co-author on his textbook. I, who came from India in 1972, I, who was assistant professor, Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Today, we have part two of my conversation with Dr. Vinay Kumar. Last week, we talked about Dr. Kumar's early education in India, the influence of his grandfather, and then some of his early work with natural killer cells. Now, today, we're going to finish up talking about natural killer cells, and then we'll hear how Dr. Kumar started working with Dr. Robbins on the Robbins pathology textbooks, and we'll get into how Dr. Kumar's teaching style has evolved over the years. All right, once again, here's Dr. Vinay Kumar. So this leads then to the, the your, your lesson of it's, it's better to be right than to be first. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, natural cells got identified in a formal way 74, 75. Okay. And there was a tremendous resistance in the establishment immunology community in accepting a new cell type, which was different from T cells and B cells, because most people said T and B cells is the immune system. And these sort of Natural killer cell, you know, they almost sort of spoke about them in disdain. Okay. Oh, they're, they're an artifact. You know, they're an artifact. Okay. You know, this is not, this, they're not real. They're artifacts. Okay. Uh, and, you know, even though we continue to publish papers because the work was so robust, the broader community never accepted NK cells as a distinct population of cells with their own distinct functions. So, so, you know, we continue, we keep, keep plotting. And a, a, a proposal came out of the immunology community that, oh, NK cells, T cells kill, scalar T cells kill, CDA T cells kill, NK cells kill. They must be connected. They must be just a variant of T cell. Now, how do you prove something is a variant of T cells or not? You prove it, now we, are, now we are in the year 1982-83. That's when the T-cell receptor was discovered by Mark Davis and a couple of other people. And so T-cell receptor, of course, is the signature, it's, it's the molecular molecular evidence of, of T-cells. Yeah. So what happened next? There was a race then. There was a race to find out if NK cells express T cell receptor by doing it southern blotting and western blotting and uh, molecular techniques. And so in 1985, a paper gets published in Nature. You know, Nature is a very impactful magazine. Right. And it says, it, 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 it describes. I can't remember the title now, but what it says is this, NK cells express these other separate genes. Okay. And nature has a little 
news and views, little editorial saying NK sells T cells after all. This is a little, you know, uh, <laughs> jab at people uh, who sent NK cells. Oh, it's, it's, it's T cells after all. Okay. So I am at a meeting in Hawaii. There was a natural killer cell workshop. In the beginning, you know, we used to have our own workshop because we, we, we never could get a, a podium on the annual immunology meetings. So there, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Louis Lanier, who is the chair of microbiology now at UCSF. So he and I are attending that and we never met before. And both of us said to each other, did you see the paper in, in, in Nature which says that the NKS was a T-cell after all? I said, yeah. I said, I said, I said, I said, I, I know it is wrong. Uh, because we have done some very comp- very important genetic studies. We have studied mice in whom a mutation prevents T cells and B cells from forming. But then NKS is a perfect array. So they can't be T cells with T cell receptors because that's blocked. That's blocked genetically. And there are other, re- other reasons without. And he said, right, that's exactly right. So he was studying human and cells. I was studying mouse and cells. So, you know, we decided that uh, when we go back to the mainland, that we will very quickly, you know, publish uh, our findings. So when I submit my paper to Nature with the title, NK cells do not rearrange cell receptor genes, the editors of uh, Nature decide not to not to not not publish it, not even review it. Oh, oh! And you know, I, I, the editor was Miranda Robertson. So I was sitting from my office in Dallas at that time and phoning her and said, "Miranda Robertson, at least get it reviewed. If if the reviewers say this is not right, well, that, that's fine. But at least get it reviewed. Say no, 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 no. This is an old topic now. This is no longer interesting. It's been it's been settled. Okay, so." I failed completely in persuading her. So I, I submitted my paper to Journal of Immunology and of course it got accepted and it got published in 1980s, late 1986. And Louis Lanier published his paper showing the same thing in Human and Kessel. So nobody remembers that nature paper now, the one which was incorrectly uh, in which any so incorrectly uh, classified as part of T cells, mm-hmm. we knew exa- we knew exactly we I mean, we knew exactly what went wrong in their work. What went wrong in their work was that they were actually uh, purifying NK cells to study them, but the purification method that they used was a percol gradient, a centrifuge in percol, and cells separate on the basis of the buoyant density, and majority of NK cells are in the upper most layer, but it's contaminated with about four to five percent T cells. And when you analyze that and you see there's a T cell receptor re- rearrangement, you're actually studying those four percent T cells. And whereas I took great pains to purify purifying NK cells with like 99% plus homogeneity. Very tedious to do. It take us overnight in the cell sorter trying to separate cells. And when we did that, we found there was no rearrangement. So it got published. Now, nobody remembers 
Nobody remembers the Niger paper. People remember Lanier's paper and my paper. So the lesson I told the, tell the students is this. It's more important to be right than to be first. Those guys were first, but they were wrong. Mm-hmm. We were later on, and we were right. Yeah. And, and right, truth is what we seek. Not, not, not be the first one to, you know, to put a stake in the ground. Right. That I love it. That that's a great lesson. All right, let's go back to Dr. Robbins then. Now. Most people listening, probably almost everyone listening, will know of Dr. Robbins as the author of, you know, one of the, you know, right now, one of the most, probably the most popular pathology uh, textbooks. I mean, but this started off with him just writing it by himself. It was called the Textbook of Pathology with Clinical Applications, which I think was, what, 1957, right? Okay. Now, I want to hear about the story of how you got involved with these textbooks with Dr. Robbins, because this, this is a really interesting story. Yeah. Yes, it is. You know, uh, yeah, life has unexpected turns. For sure. So, so, so the year is 1979. My research is very well established. I have recruited my first MD-PhD student. I obtained in 1976 my first NIH I have a lab now of my own with technicians and the first graduate student, patient, John Lust. He's a professor at the Mayo Clinic now. And everything's going on. As I tell people, life was beautiful. What more I came, what more could I ask for? I was doing research in an area that was interesting to me. I was successful in making a major contribution to the field. I had people working with me. I had grants. Life is beautiful. So I'm floating in this feeling of life is beautiful. In 1979, Dr. Robbins calls me to his office one day. And in a very sort of somber tone, he doesn't look at my face, actually. He looks, there was a window there. He was looking out from the window. I remember I had seen it etched in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, he, he was, I can't remember if he ever called me to his office before then. Okay. And we would meet in the library. We had a small departmental library. We would meet there and so on. So he says to me, in a very serious tone, uh, he said, he used to call me Vin. Not Vinay, but Vin. He says, Vin, I'm going to retire in a couple of years. And I wonder if you would be willing to be my co-author of Robbins. I'm, I'm awestruck. I'm, I, I'm, I'm just, I start to stammer. Uh-huh. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Robbins, uh, I, uh, and uh, he says, "Look, this is a very important decision. I don't want you to make it to, to tell me now. Go think about it. Go think about it. I know what you're, what's on your mind. I know what's on your mind is this that the book writing will take away so much of your time that your research will suffer. So he." I think you can do it, but you, you, you should think about it. 
and I gathered my wits and come out and say to myself, what just happened? Dr. Robbins is asking me to become an author on his textbook. I, who came from India in 1972, I, who was assistant professor. There are so many distinguished outstanding senior pathologists in the country who, 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 who were salivating, hoping that they would be the successor to Robbins or partner to Robbins as Robbins that fades out in mm-hmm. total time. And he hasn't called any one of them. He's calling me. And Dennis, I don't even have boards in American Motor Pathology because I never did residency. My residency was, was in India. Like all I did was research and teaching. Oh, right. Okay. So I come out and uh, Michael Bennett, my mentor and friend by then uh, in research, I go to him and he said, what happened? I said, Dr. Robbins called me to his office and said, you know, you want to go out He says, what did you say? Uh, I said, I said, I told him, I have to think about it. He said, you're an idiot. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. No, he said, you're an idiot. Okay. Go back and tell him you can do this thing. I said, oh, Michael. <laughs> so, you know, I come and within five minutes I go back and say this yes, I want to do this thing. And uh, and you know you know Mike Bennett reinforced what I have told you before. He said, Vinny, you can do it. Mm-hmm. You can do research and you can do this also. Okay. And the underlying message was Nothing is impossible. Do you ever think about how different your life would be if you had told Dr. Robbins, no, I, I can't do this? You, you are, you, I, I have. I have. Okay. Uh, he, you know, Dennis, I think what would have most likely happened, not, you know, now reflecting back. Okay. Uh, so I started writing, by the way, in 1979. That's the first time I started working with him. And, you know, there's been evolution of textbooks and so on and so forth. And, mm-hmm. in, in fact, the next edition is going to be called Robbins and Kumar, Physical Pathology. Yeah. Right. Uh, the publishers have been, and my co-authors uh, have been very generous about it. And I think, so I did have to make some compromise in my research. I, 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 had a modest size lab. The work we were doing was quality, absolute high quality. So I kept getting funding. But my research operation was, you know, modest compared to other people who were at a similar level in their careers. And, And it's interesting because I got my first endowed chair in UT Southwestern. Uh, and uh, they had a little news clip on it in this uh, medical school's magazine. Uh, and the, the, and the, one of the people working in the news magazine, it's called Center Times, okay? editor of Center Times, said, you know, what do you love more, research or education, medical education? 
I said, both. He said, no, 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 tell us, which one, which one do you really like more? I said, both. I like both mm. equally. And you know, Dennis, it's interesting. Writing the books is also research. Oh, yeah. Okay, it's also research. Okay. So in my mind, I was doing research, you know, one of which was lab bench-based, other was library-based, where I would read and go and look for articles and, you know, try to uh, update the thing and modify and so on and so forth. And, and this, something else happened. Research I did for writing, updating Robbins, I would read papers, uh, not just uh, American Journal of Pathology and uh, Archives of Pathology and Lab Medicine. I used nature and science and Journal of Experimental Medicine because one of the things that is a hallmark of our book is this, books is this, that we are at the cutting edge. We describe, we are, I, I, I know we are, we are the most up-to-date book in pathology because we work very hard to understand and to write them in a form for medical students of the of the research that's going on in the disease packaging field. So when, when I would do this research, I would actually learn new research methodologies. Somebody did this, 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 this to prove that lupus is associated with this thing, this. Okay. So in a way, I was able to, I, I was get, I got exposed to cutting edge research technologies. And I go to my lab and I apply those same techniques to my research. Mm, okay. So through working on the Robbins textbooks, you kind of were able to kind of keep a foot in each area that you were interested, that you're interested in. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 the, the other way around, you know, I did research and I had to I, I would publish papers. I would go to meetings, okay. And I and I say this with all modesty. When I present work at a national meeting or national meeting, people understand, even though it might be out of their field and the technology may be very, very complex. So my skills as a teacher improved by giving talks at various places. And because I was known to be a very good speaker, I used to get a lot of invitations around the world to come and give a talk. So, you know, it's sort of, it was uh, bi-directional. I think that uh, my research made my book books better and my books made my research better okay that makes sense and uh, the way i understand it is when when you do a new edition of of any of the robbins textbooks i mean it's just it's not a matter of like correcting some wording or whatever a lot of it is is rewritten and there's new illustrations and all of those things so like you said you are researching all these areas it's like you're researching all of pathology really to come up with a new edition of the textbook Absolutely, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. We, uh, 
You know, let me tell you something. People, some, some people often think incorrectly that you know, revising a book, which is already very good, it's a simple task. Okay, you go, you read the things that are new, and you put them in. No, 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 no. Of course, you read, you read the literature, you read the advances, and now you have to put them in the book, and you can't just cut and paste. If I introduce a new paragraph or two in the discussion of cystic fibrosis, that has to, the two things have to happen. One is something else has to be removed from the book because we have kept our book as a single volume book from, from the time it was first published in 1957, always being with between 1,300 and 1,400 pages. Mm -hmm. So that means that whatever we add, we have to subtract also. Okay. So how do we do that? When we have something new, it has to blend with the flow of the what was already in there. And it should not look like you cut out something and pasted something there. One of the one of the one of the great features of Robbins and Robbins was a master of this about how well the books were written, how easy it was to read them, and students found them. They really and written a very conversational style. Actually, you may recall that in chapter four. We had done this, this, this thing. And you should know that immunity is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it does this. Very, very conversational style. So you have to keep that same style. You have to keep the flow with the new, new, new stuff added. So it's not just simple cutting and pasting. In fact, we are, we are very compulsive. Right now, we are revising basic technology. Okay? And we have taken a fourth editor of this. It's Kumar, Abbas, Astor, and Daryl. Right. Each one of us reads each chapter. Whatever my chapter is read by the three others, and I, I read the chapter of the three others. So, in the first round, everybody reads everybody else's. Every page, every, every word. And we all sort of comment on it and suggest edits. And then the, the one, the primary author of the chapter, gets them all back and edits all of them and puts them in a form that it does not look like, you know, there's a little piece here, little piece here, little piece there. It sort of becomes a part of it. It flows. Mm -hmm. And so, so, and that is the first round, Dennis. We read the book for three rounds at least. Then there's a second round with some corrections. Then there's a third round. We are reading and revising towards the end, just small sentences here and there. You know, the grammar doesn't look so good. Our sentence structure doesn't look so good. We, we, we keep on correcting those things until three months before publication. And the publisher says, okay, no more. Because we, you, you've done it three or four times, and we have to send this to the printer. The book has to come out, you know, 
It takes about three months for them to send to printer, bind it, and then then mm-hmm. distribute. And so, so there are two things that come from this. You know, one is of course writing a book, which is interesting, easy to read. The other is to seek perfection. What do I mean by that? When we revise, when we read a revised chapter second time, third time, and fourth time, we are looking for something that is absolutely perfect. If we did not, if we, if we did less of less of the rewriting and revising, the book would still be all right because all the new information would be in there. Okay, but it may not be as readable. As our books are. So this is something that we learned from Dr. Rothens. And I'll tell you an anecdote here, which is how I first got this lesson. Okay. So in 1979, when Robbins called me and said, okay, Vinay, I, I said, yes, I will do it. So okay, Vinay, here, here's the book. There are 22 chapters in it. Since you are new, you take whatever 11 chapters you want. We'll write half and half exactly. Okay. You take 11, whatever you don't want, I'll take. I said, okay. So I look at the table of contents and I take up all the general pathologies, chapters, neoplasia, SL injury, apoptosis, etc., etc., because I'm sort of a research oriented pathologist. But you know, that's only seven. Okay. So Robin says, okay, four, four more. Okay. So now I'm trying to think which, which four should I take? And I sort of sneakily looked at the side, the, how many pages each of the remaining chapters had. So I, I, I picked the first chapter I pick is this is the male genital system because it had only 18 pages. I said, this is a short chapter, okay? It still counts as a chapter, but it's mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I take that and then Robin said, if you take this, then check the female genital system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I start by revising the male genital system chapter. It's the shortest one. And I said, let me just do this thing, you know, and I can check mark and done. Get one chapter done. So I rewrite it extensively, actually, and give it to Robbins. And, you know, he edits it heavily you know, with the readings, you know, delete this line, add this line. This is not clear. Uh, you know, what do you mean by this, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So I said, of course, you know, my first time doing this thing. And by the way, by that time, I published several papers, research papers. So it wasn't that I didn't know how to write. Uh, so I take it and I revise it. I revise it and I give it to Dr. Robbins. It comes back a couple of days later with additional different marks here, there, etc. Et I said, okay, you know, second version. I write the third draft and I said to myself, you know, it's pretty much done now. You know, it's gone through twice. It made comments, made improvements. This this should be really the last version. So I give it to him. And two days later, I get it back with other comments and other uh, suggestions. And at the bottom of it, writes Robbins, when there is no good writing, there's only good rewriting. There's no good writing. There's only good rewriting. Hmm. And and it's, it's profound. Yeah. And, and 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 I think 
that's the I translate that to me. We are seekers of perfection. And we keep on working, getting closer and closer to perfection. You know, to improve from 80% to 90% is easy. From 90% to 95% is harder. From 95% to 98% is even harder. From 98% to 99% is very hard. And that's what Ravana was making us do, to go from to the limit of whatever the limit may be 90% or 99.5%. And we have kept that habit and we do exactly what Robbins made me do today. I like it. That's another, that's another great lesson. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Vinay Kumar. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Vinay Kumar on the People of Pathology podcast. Uh, you know... It, we didn't, we really didn't even really talk about your teaching career, which has been extensive. I mean, starting in Boston, going to UT Southwestern, and now at University of Chicago. And I know you mentioned this a little bit earlier, how as you've been working on the Robbins textbooks, and then you would give talks, and that would, like you would learn from those experiences and adjust your te- teaching methods, and then your teaching methods would adjust your the talks that you gave, and it kind of went back and forth, like you said. And I wonder if this, does this go all the way back then to that lesson of, of curiosity from the beginning? How you're, you're still, you still have that curiosity. And so you're constantly evolving, not only the textbooks, but your teaching style as well. Uh, Dennis, you're absolutely correct. Okay. And uh, uh, so going back to the beginning, when, when uh, Robbins uh, told me that, he asked me, he said, uh, you, you want to research, but what else do you want to do? Uh, clinical work? I said, no, I don't want clinical work. Okay. I'm trained. I'm already trained. I don't, I don't, I came for research. He said, well, you have to do something else. I said, okay, I like teaching. I love teaching. So it's okay, you do teaching. <laughs> so, so here is, here is, here is how I started teaching. So I've been in Boston now for about a month or so. And uh, Robin said, Robin says, that, you know, we are teaching second year class pathology. Um, why don't you go give a lecture on fungal diseases? I immediately understood what it meant. Fungal disease is a topic that nobody likes, nobody wants. Right. Okay. And it's so complicated, you know, mucor, aspergillus, septate, nor septate, hyphae, no hyphae, you know, endospherules, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 uh, and this and that, and so on and so on. Uh, it looks it looks very complicated, and it's, it's something that nobody actually wants to teach. So Robbins gives that to me. I, you know, in his mind, it was he was giving me a test, and I said, "Sure, I'll do it." So I go to the class, and you know, there are about uh, I would say 60 percent attendance, okay? which is not not atypical. And I give this lecture, 
And at the end of the mission, I get this huge thousand of applause. You know, not like as if you had a symphony orchestra and you're it ended and your sort of applause goes on for minutes. Oh wow! And so you know, it 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 went on, and I was very pleased. And I came back. My office was on the eighth floor, and the pathology department was on the eighth floor, and the lecture hall was on the first floor. So I come up and I go to my office, and uh, you know, and then later in the afternoon, uh, you know, I meet Robbins uh, in the department library. And he said, hey, you know, you, you must have given some fantastic lecture. And I said, thank you, sir. He said, students loved it. I said, thank you, sir. He said, you know, the students have come to him with the request that those students who didn't attend the lecture, would you be willing to give this lecture to them? They also want to listen. And then I said, oh, you know, <laughs> and he said, okay, if you don't want to do that, they say, why don't you tape record your lecture? Okay, <laughs> so it will basically a podcast. So you say, so I actually taped record my lecture and gave it to them. So that was sort of the beginning of my teaching, and uh, you know, then progressively, Robbins gave me more and more teaching, and in fact, he made me in charge of pathology teaching at Boston University School of Medicine. And then I moved to, in 1982, I moved to UT Southwestern. And once again there, uh, because I was a researcher and I'm not a clinician, they said, you know, you are in charge of teaching. I said, yeah, you see, you're author of Robbins, you know, it's a natural thing, you should be the person in charge of teaching. I said, sure, I'll do that. And as sort of, you know, years passed, it became increasingly clear that students didn't come to attend lectures. I don't know. I don't know how many students at the place you are actually go to listen to lectures. Well, there are no lectures, in-person lectures anyway, because of the COVID. Mm-hmm. So there were, you know, less not, less than half the class was coming. And my faculty colleagues were very upset. They said, "Oh, we spent hours preparing for the lecture, and then you see that there were." 20 students sitting there. I, why should I do this thing? In any case, you know, uh, the lecture is tape recorded and, uh, you know, and somebody taking notes and, you know, they, they read them and, you know, why, why should I do this thing? And I said to my colleagues, I said, look, if students are not coming, and we, our reaction now, they're irresponsible, you know, they're not interested. Maybe, maybe what we are doing is not, not, not right. Let's ask the students why they don't come. So I, you know, gather a bunch of students and say, you know, I want to be very candid with you, very honest with you. Why don't you guys come to lectures? And the students say, sir, to tell you the truth, 80% of what the lecture, lecture content, we can easily read out our is the 15, 20% where the professor, uh, you know, gives their own experience in that, in that topic area. And maybe describe clinical vignettes. Mm, okay. Okay. So that we not only listen, but we also listen, we also learn application. Not just the knowledge, 
but application of knowledge. That's what we want. So I come back to the, my, my faculty and I say, you know, this is what the students want. And I think as a mission to it. So what I did was over the next two years, I think it was a revolution. We cut down lectures by two-thirds. And we made hundred cases. And we started to do case-based teaching. Now case-based teaching is application. Students loved it. Because now they have to learn, read the book, read the learning objectives and apply them to a clinical case. So we made 100 cases covering all of pathology and we made them interactive. Uh, By now it was possible to do electronically. We made it interactive. You know, there's a picture of glomerulus and the description said base membrane is thickened. And when you when you highlight the word basement memory is thickened, the base memory gets outlined in the picture. And then it goes away as you move your cursor. And so it was interactive. Students could, it was like a professor giving them lecture at any time, every time, but in the context of disease. And the case discussions were all mechanism-based, clinically mechanism, clinical-based mechanism, clinical pathology coordinations, pathogenesis, pathophysiology. Mm-hmm. And we would even discuss treatment. So, Dennis, that was the first, to my knowledge, first use of what is what later on called flipped classroom. Right, yeah. Okay. Same number of hours. I told the dean, I said, we're not giving up hours. We are giving, we are, we are going to change the method we use and we'll give students a lot of free time. In fact, the schedule said pathology independent study time. Which, which replaced the lectures. And we told the students, okay, we have given you the cases, we have given you the time, we have told you the book. You guys say you want to do it on your own, do it. You're happy with it. And you know, Dennis, what happened? Attendance came back to 100%. In case discussions, in the few lectures that were still there, you know, 20%. Okay? Because mm-hmm. some people really learn best by hearing. That, you know, different learners learn differently. We know that some people learn better by reading, some people learn by listening, some people by doing, and so on. Sure. So, 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 so this the method provided everybody to use their learning styles that's best suited to them. And student attendance in case discussions, you know, it was not mandatory. We didn't take we didn't take attendance. Okay, there were twelve to fifteen students per per group. All came. And when somebody could not come, they would write me a note, Dr. Man, I'm very sorry, I have a doctor's appointment this time, I want to come. And I didn't ask them to tell me when they're coming or not coming. But they felt that it was such a good exercise. They were apologetic that they were not they won't they won't be there. And then what I did was uh, to I told the students you know, to prepare for these case discussions, which are very open-ended. And there's no advance. We don't give us questions to answer in advance. We will ask anything and everything. So the, the best thing for you to do is to form small groups. Make groups of four or five people. And each one of you say, okay, in, in, in autoimmune diseases, 
you know, I will be the one who read lupus very carefully. You will be the one who read, you know, systemic sclerosis very carefully. We sit down and we'll quiz each other and we'll tell each other, we'll talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Make small groups. And interestingly, that is one of the things that I've learned and I've told the students this. Teaching is the best way of learning. When you have to teach, you have to be very sure what what you're saying. Okay, so the students in this setting of case-based teaching, small group interactions, we facilitated maximum learning. In in, in Chicago, we do of something very similar. A very integrated pathology and medicine combined course, and a lot of discussion sessions, mm-hmm. and a lot of electronic media is there. You can do you can do many things now. Sure. No, I love it. Just the the evolution of the teaching style, and you know, like you said, the teaching is the best way of learning. So then, the students learn to teach each other. And yes. And maybe one or more of them will have some kind of future in teaching as, as well, just, just like you have. Absolutely. 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 But you know, Dennis, it's very important for doctors to be able to articulate things clearly. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, you know, a large role, a large part of being a doctor, I think, is communicating with you know, patients for one yes. thing, but, also, but other doctors, other medical staff. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, so a physician is always a teacher. Every every physician is teaching somebody else. Mm-hmm. If I'm a consultant in endocrinology and I have to give a consult to general medicine, I'm teaching. Right. The better my communication it is, the better it is for the patient. I love it. That's great. That, that actually that might be a good place to end on. I think. Yes, Dr. Kumar, I really appreciate your time. It's been an absolute honor to go through your career and to, and to hear your stories. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. So Dr. Vinay Kumar, thank you very much. Thank you, Dennis. I hope you could feel that I was enjoying talking. Great big thanks once again to Dr. Vinay Kumar. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. We've talked about a lot of ways that you advocate for the field, and this seems to be a major focus for you. If we were talking to a group of pathologists and and kind of suggesting additional ways that they could advocate for our field, what, what would you say? I'd say start with small steps. Don't feel that you have to go straight in at the deep end and do something on a massive scale. So maybe give a talk at your children's school. You know, most schools will have careers days and talks and things like that or perhaps invite a medical student to come and have a look at their patient's slide, or get a team of colleagues at work together and hold an open day. You could do that for interested members of staff in the hospital, Uh, get them to come and have a look around, talk them through what happened, the journey of a specimen as it arrives. It doesn't have to be anything too ambitious. But also I'd say have a look out for uh, national and international initiatives like National Pathology Day, International Pathology Week, or whatever your national awareness raising week is. You can hear more from Dr. Susie Lishman in episode 86. Dr. Kumar is such a great storyteller and his stories are so inspiring on top of that. So it was such a great honor to be able to have this conversation with him. And I'm glad that I was able to bring it to all of you. 
many of his stories have great lessons in them as well. I mean, there was the one about compassion from part one where he talked about his grandfather. Certainly a lot of the stories had the element of curiosity in them as well as just kind of grabbing opportunities as they come up. But I think the greatest one was something Dr. Kumar said about nothing is impossible. And this is certainly, you know, his life and his career has certainly proven that. So I hope this conversation was as inspiring to you as it was to me. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.